Chapter 6 of My Danish Sweetheart, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Courtney Miller. My Danish Sweetheart, Volume 1 by William Clark Russell. Chapter 6. Captain Nielsen. Captain Nielsen was veritably corpse-like in aspect viewed by the cold gray iron light sifting through the little windows out of the spray-shrouded air. The unnatural brightness of his eyes painfully defined the attenuation of his face, and the sickly, parchment-like complexion of his skin. He extended his hand, but could hardly find time to deliver a greeting, so violent was his hurry to receive his daughter's report. He shook his head when he heard that his topgallant mast and jibbooms were wrecked, and passionately exclaimed in Danish, on his daughter telling him of the increase of water in the hold. "'She must be taking it in from below,' he then cried in English. "'She has strained herself.' Should this continue, what is to be done? She will need to be constantly pumped, and ah, my God, you are but two. Yes, Captain, cried I, incensed that he should appear to have no thoughts but for his ship. But if you do not insist upon your daughter taking some rest, there will be but one, long before this gale has blown itself out. Oh, my dear, it is so, he exclaimed, looking at her on a sudden with impassioned concern. Mr. Tregarthen is right. You will sink under your efforts. Your dear heart will break. Rest now. Rest, my beloved child. I command you to rest. You must go below. You must lie in your own cabin. This good gentleman is about. He will sit with me and go forth and report. The Anine tends to herself, and there is nothing in human skill to help her outside what she can herself do. But we must not starve, father, she answered. Let us first breakfast, as best we can, and then I will go below. She left the cabin and promptly returned, bringing with her the remains of the cold meat we had supped off some biscuit, and a bottle of red wine. Her father drank a little of the wine and ate a morsel of a biscuit. Indeed, food seemed to excite a loathing in him. I saw that Helga eyed him piteously, but she did not press him to eat. It might be that she had experience of his stubbornness. She said, in a soft aside to me, his appetite is leaving him, and how can I tempt him without the means of cooking? Does not he look very ill this morning? It is weary, added to rheumatic pain, said I. We must get him ashore as soon as possible, where he can be nursed in comfort. But though these words flowed readily, out of my sympathy with the poor, brave, suffering girl, they were assuredly not in correspondence with my secret feelings. It was not only, I was certain, that Captain Nielsen lay in his cot a dying man, the roaring of the wind, the beating of the sea against the bark, the wild extravagant leapings and divings, the perception that water was draining into the hold, and that there were but two of us and one of those two a girl, to work the pumps, made a mockery to my heart of my reference to the captain getting ashore and being nursed there. We sat in that slanting and leaping interior with plates on our knees. The girl feigned to eat. Her head drooped with weariness, yet I noticed that she would force a cheerful note into the reply she made to her father's ceaseless feverish questions. When we had ended our meal, she left us to go below to her cabin, but before leaving she asked me, with eyes full of tender pleading, to keep her father's heart up to make the best of such reports as I might have to give him after going out to take a look round, and she told me that he would need his physic at such and such a time, and so lingered, dwelling upon him and glancing at him, and then she went out in a hurry with one hand upon her breast, yet not so swiftly but that I could see her eyes were swimming. "'There is a barometer in the cabin,' said Captain Nielsen. "'Will you tell me how the mercury stands?' The glass was fixed to the bulkhead outside. I returned and gave him the reading." "'Tis a little rise,' he cried, 
with his unnaturally bright eyes eagerly fastened upon me. I would not tell him that it was not so, that the mercury, indeed, stood at the level I had observed on the preceding day in my glass in the lifeboat house. Fierce weather of this sort, said I, soon exhausts itself. He continued to stare at me, but now with an air of musing that somewhat softened the painful, brilliant intentness of his regard. I pray God, said he, that this weather may speedily enable us to obtain help, for I fear that if I am not treated I shall get very low, perhaps die. I am ill, yet what is my malady? This rheumatism is a sudden seizure. I could walk when at Cuxhaven. In as cheerful a voice as I could assume, I begged him to consider that his mind might have much to do with those bodily sensations which made him feel ill. It may be so, it may be so, he exclaimed, with a sad smile of faltering hope. I wish to live. I am not an old man. It will be hard if my time is to come soon. It is Helga. It is Helga, he muttered, pressing his brow with his thin hand. I was about to speak. How wearisome, he broke out. Is this ceaseless tossing? I ran away to see. It was my own doing. I had my childish dreams, strange and beautiful fancies of foreign countries, and I ran away. He went on in a rambling manner like one thinking aloud. And yet I love the old ocean, though it is serving me cruelly now. It has fed me, it has held me to its breast, and my nourishment and life have come from it. He started, and, bringing his eyes away from the upper deck on which they had been fixed while he spoke, he cried, Sir, you are a stranger to me, but you are an Englishman of heroic heart, and you will forgive me. Should I die, and should God be pleased to spare you and my child, will you protect her until she has safely returned to her friends at Colding? She will be alone in any part of the world until she is there, and if I am assured that she will have the generous compassion of your heart with her, a guardian to take my place until she reaches Colding, it will make me easy in my ending, let the stroke come when it will. I came to this ship to save your lives, I answered. I hope to be an instrument yet of helping to save them. Trust me to do your bidding if it were only for my admiration of your daughter's heroic qualities. But do not speak of dying, Captain Nielsen. He interrupted me. There is my dear friend Pastor Blicker of Colding, and there is Pastor Janssen of Scandrup. They are good and gentle Christian men, who will receive Helga, and stand by her, and soothe her, and counsel her as to my little property. Ah, my little property, he cried. If this vessel flounders, what have I? Pray, said I with the idea of quietly cooking his mind into a more cheerful mood. What is so seriously wrong with you, Captain, that you should lie there gloomily foreboding your death? Such rheumatism as yours is not very quick to kill. I was long dangerously ill of a fever in the West Indies, he answered, and it left a vital organ weak. The mischief is here, I fear, said he, touching his right side above his hip. I felt very ill at Cuxhaven, but this voyage was to be made. I am too poor a man to suffer my health to forfeit the money that is to be got by it. Hark, what was that? He leaned his head over the cot, straining his hearing with a nervous fluttering of his emaciated fingers. It was miserable to see how white the skin of his sunken cheeks showed against the whiteness of the canvas of his cot. I heard nothing, I answered. It was the noise of a blow, he exclaimed. Pray go and see if anything is wrong, he added, speaking out of his habit of giving orders, and with a peremptoriness that forced a smile from me as I went to the door. I made my way through the house onto the deck, and looked about me, but it was the same scene to stare at and hearken to that I had viewed before. The same thunder and shriek of wind, the same clouding of the forward part of the bark and foam, the same miserable, dismal picture of water flashing from bulwark to bulwark. 
of high green frothing seas towering past the line of the rail as the vessel swung in a smother of seething yeast into the trough. I caught sight of a long hencoop abaft the structure in which the sailors had lived, with the red gleam of a coxcomb betwixt a couple of the bars, and guessing that the wretched inmates must, by this time, be in sore need of food and water, I very cautiously made my way to the coop, holding on by something at every step. The coop was, indeed, full of poultry, but all lay drowned. I returned to the deckhouse and mounted on top of it, where I should be able to obtain a good view of as much of the ocean as was exposed, and where also I should be out of the wet which, on the main deck, rolled with weight enough at times to sweep a man off his legs. The roof of the house, if I may so term it, was above the rail, and the whole fury of the gale swept across it. I never could have guessed at the hurricane force of the wind while standing on the deck beneath. It was impossible to face it. If I glanced but one instant to windward, my eyes seemed to be blown into my head. I had not gained that elevation above a minute when I heard a sharp rattling aloft, and looking upwards, I perceived that the main royal had blown loose. For the space of a breath or two, it made the rattling noise that had called my attention to it. Then the whole bladder-like body of it was swept in a flash away from the yard, and nothing remained but a whip or two streaming straight out, like white hair from the spar. A moment later, the main top gallant sail, that had been, no doubt, hastily and badly furled, was blown out of the gaskets. I thought to see it go as the royal had, but while I watched, waiting for the flight of the rags of it down into the leeward gloom of the sky, the mast snapped off at the cap at the instant of the sail bursting and disappearing like a gush of mist, and down fell the whole mass of hamper to a little below the stay, under which it madly swung, held by its gear. This disaster, comparatively trifling as it was, gave the whole fabric a most melancholy, wrecked look. It affected me in a manner I should not have thought possible in one who knew so much about the sea and shipwreck as I. It impressed me as an omen of approaching dissolution. What, in God's name, can save us? I remember thinking, as I brought my eyes away from the two broken masts, swinging and spearing high up under the smoke-colored, compacted, apparently stirless heaps of vapor stretching from sea line to sea line. What put together by mortal hands can go on resisting this ceaseless, tremendous beating? And as I thus thought the vessel, with a wild swoop of her bow, smote a giant surge rushing laterally at her, and a whole green sea broke roaring over the forecastle, making every timber in her tremble with a volcanic thrill, and entirely submerging the forepart in white waters, out of which she soared with a score of cataracts flying in smoke from her sides. I looked for the flag that Helga and I had half-masted a little while before. It had as utterly disappeared from betwixt its toggles as though the bunting had been ripped up and down by a knife. As I was in the act of dragging myself along to the ladder to go below, I spied a sort of smudge oozing out of the iron-hued thickness past the head of a great sea whose arching peak was like a snow-clad hill. I crouched down to steady myself and presently what I had at first thought to be some dark shadow of cloud upon the near horizon grew into the proportions of a large ship, running dead before the gale under a narrow band of main topsail. She was heading to pass under our stern, and rapidly drew out, and in a few minutes I had her clear, clean and bright as a new painting against the background of shadow, along whose dingy, misty base the ocean line was washing in flickering green heights. She was a large steam frigate, clearly a foreigner, for I do not know that our country had a ship of the kind afloat at the time. She had a white band broken by ports, and the black and gleaming defenses of her bulwarks were crowned with stowed hammocks. Her topgallant masts were housed, 
and the large cross trees and huge black tops and wide spread of shrouds gave her a wonderfully heavy, massive ship-of-war look aloft. The band of close-reefed main topsail had the glare of foam as it swung majestically from one sea-line to the other, slowly swaying across the dark and stooping heaven with a noble and solemn rhythm of movement. I never could have imagined a sight to more wholly fascinate my gaze. Always crouching low, I watched her under the shelter of my hands locked upon my brow. I beheld nothing living aboard of her. She came along as though informed by some spirit and government of her own. As her great stem sank to the figurehead, there arose a magnificent boiling, a mountainous cloud of froth on either bow of her, and the roar of those riven seas seemed to add a deeper tone of thunder to the gale. All was taut aboard, every rope like a ruled line, different indeed from our torn and wrecked and trailing appearance on high. She swept past within a quarter of a mile of us, and what pen could convey the incredible power suggested by that great fabric as her stern lifted to the curl of the enormous Atlantic surge, and the whole ship rushed forward on the hurling froth of the sea, with an electric velocity that brought the very heart into one's throat. She was a mere smudge again, this time to leeward. In a few minutes, I could only stare at her. Our flag had blown away, I was without power to signal, and even if I had been able to communicate our condition of distress, what help could she have offered? What could she have done for us in such a sea as was now running? Yet the mere sight of her had heartened me. She made me feel that help could never be wanting in an ocean so plowed by keels as the Atlantic. I crawled down onto the quarter-deck and returned to the captain's cabin. The poor man at once fell with feverish eagerness to questioning me. I told him honestly that the main top gallant mast had carried away while I was on deck, but that there was nothing else wrong that I could distinguish, that the bark was still making a noble fight though there were times when the seas broke very fiercely and dangerously over the forecastle. He waved his head with a gesture of distress, crying, So it is, so it is, one spar after another, and thus may we go to pieces. I told him of the great steam frigate that had passed, but to this piece of news he listened with a vacant look, and apparently could think of nothing but his spars. He asked in a childish, fretful way how long Helga had been below, and I answered him stoutly, not nearly long enough for sleep. Aye, cried he, but the bark needs to be pumped, sir. Your daughter will work the better for rest, said I, and then, looking at my watch, I found it was time to give him his physic. He exclaimed, looking at the wine glass, There is no virtue in this stuff. The sufferer can make but one use of it. And, still preserving a manner of curious childishness, he emptied the contents of the glass over the edge of his cot onto the deck, and, as he swung, lay watching the mess of it on the floor with a smile. I guessed that expostulation would be fruitless, and, indeed, having but very little faith myself in any sort of physic, I secretly applauded his behavior. I sat down upon the locker, and leaning my back against the bulkhead, endeavored by conversation to bring a cheerful look to his countenance, but his mood of depression was not to be conquered. At times he would ramble a little, quote passages from Danish plays in his native tongue, then pause with his head on one side, as though waiting for me to applaud what he forgot I did not understand. How fine is this from Palnatoke, he would cry, or hark to this from that noble performance, Hacken Jarl. Ah, it is England alone can match Olenschlager. I could only watch him mutely. Then he would break away to bewail his spars again, and to cry out that Helga would be left penniless, would be a poor beggar girl if his ship foundered. But is not the Anine insured? I said I. Yes, he answered, but not by me. I was obliged to borrow money upon her, and she is insured by the man who lent me the money. But you have an interest in the cargo, Captain Nielsen. 
Aye, cried he, and that I insured. But what will it be worth to my poor little Helga? And he hid his face in his hands and rocked himself. However, he presently grew somewhat composed, and certainly more rational, and after a while I found myself talking about Tintranel, my home and associations, my lifeboat excursions, and the like. And then we conversed upon the course that was to be adopted should the weather moderate and find us still afloat. We should be able to do nothing, he said, without assistance from a passing ship, in the sense of obtaining a few sailors to work the bark, or a steamer might come along that would be willing to give us a tow. The land's end cannot be far off, said he. No, said I, not if this gale means to drop today, but it will be far enough off if it is to go on blowing. He inquired what I made the drift to be, and then calculated that the English coast would now be bearing about east-northeast, sixty miles distant. Let the wind chop round, cried he, with a gleam in his sunken eye, and you and Helga would have the anine in the channel before midnight. We continued to talk in this strain, and he seemed to forget the wretchedness of our situation. Then suddenly he called out to know the time, abruptly breaking away from what he was saying. Hard upon eleven o'clock, said I. This will not do, he cried. The bark, as we talk, is filling under our feet. The well should be sounded. Helga must be called. I beseech you to call Helga, he repeated nervously, smiting the side of his cot with his clenched hand. Ah, God, he added, that I should be without the power to move. I will sound the well, said I. Should I find an increase, I will arouse your daughter. Go, I beg of you, he cried in high notes. The bark seems sotten to me. She does not lift and fall as she did. I guessed this to be imagination, but the mere fancy of such a thing being true frightened me also, and I hastily went out. I dried the rod and chalked it as Helga had, and watching my chance, dropped it, and found five inches of water above the level our last spell at the pump had left in the hold. I was greatly startled, and to make sure that my first cast was right, I sounded a second time, and sure enough the rod showed five inches as before. I hastened with the news to the captain. I knew it! I feared it! he cried, his voice shrill with a very ecstasy of hurry, anxiety, and sense of helplessness that worked in him. Call Helga! Lose not an instant! Run! I beg you will run! But run where? cried I. Where does the girl sleep? Go down the hatchway in the deckhouse, he shouted in shrill accents as though bent upon putting into this moment the whole of his remaining slender stock of vitality. There are four cabins under this deck. Hers is the aftermost one on the starboard side. Don't delay. If she does not instantly answer, enter and arouse her. And as I sped from the cabin, I heard him crying that he knew by the motions of the ship she was filling rapidly, and that she would go down on a sudden like lead. It was a black, square trap of hatchway into which I looked a moment before putting my legs over. There was a short flight of almost perpendicular steps conducting to the lower deck. On my descending, I found the place so dark that I was forced to halt till my eyes should grow used to the obscurity. There was a disagreeable smell of cargo down here, and such a heart-shaking uproar of straining timbers, of creaking bulkheads, of the thumps of seas and the muffled, yearning roar of the giant water sweeping under the vessel, that for a little while I stood as one utterly bewildered. Soon, however, I managed to distinguish outlines, and, with outstretched hands and weary legs, made my way to the cabin Captain Nielsen had indicated, and beat upon the door. There was no response. I beat again, listening, scarcely thinking, perhaps, that the girl would require a voice as keen as a boatswain's pipe to thread the soul-confounding and brain-muddling clamor in this afterdeck of the storm-beaten bark. He bade me enter, thought I, and enter I must if the girl is to be aroused, and I turned the handle of the door and walked in. Helga lay, attired as she had left the deck, in an upper bunk, 
through the portal of which the daylight, bright with the foam, came and went upon her face as the vessel at one moment buried the thick glass of the scuttle in the green blindness of the sea, and then lifted it weeping and gleaming into the air. Her head was pillowed on her arm. Her hair in the weak light showed as though touched by a dull beam of the sun. Her eyes were sealed. Their long lashes put a delicate shading under them. Her white face wore a sweet expression of happy serenity, and I could believe that some glad vision was present to her. Her lips were parted in the expression of a smile. There was a feeling in me as of profanity in this intrusion, and of wrongdoing in the obligation forced upon me of waking her from a peaceful, pleasant, all-important repose to face the bitter hardships and necessities of that time of tempest. But for my single pair of arms the pump was too much, and she must be aroused. I lightly put my hand upon hers, and her smile was instantly more defined, as though my action were coincident with some phase of her dream. I pressed her hand. She sighed deeply, looked at me, and instantly sat up with a little frown of confusion. "'Your father begged me to enter and arouse you,' said I. "'I was unable to make you hear by knocking. I have sounded the well, and there is an increase of five inches.' "'Ah!' she exclaimed, and sprang lightly out of her bunk. In silence and with amazing despatch, seeing that a few seconds before she was in a deep sleep, she put on her sea helmet, whipped a handkerchief round her neck, and was leading the way to the hatch on buoyant feet. On gaining the deck, I discovered that the wrecked appearance of the ship aloft had been greatly heightened during my absence below by the foretop sail having been blown into rags. It was a single sail, and the few long strips of it which remained blowing out horizontally from the yards, stiff as crowbars, gave an indescribable character forlornness to the fabric. Helga glanced aloft, and immediately perceived that the main top-gallant mast had been wrecked, but said nothing, and in a minute the pair of us were hard at work. I let go the break only when my companion was too exhausted to continue, but now, on sounding the well, we found that our labors had not decreased the water to the same extent as heretofore. It was impossible, however, to converse out of shelter. Moreover, a fresh danger attended exposure on deck, for, in addition to the wild sweeping of green seas forward, to the indescribably violent motions of the bark, which threatened to break our heads or our limbs for us, to fling us bruised and senseless against the bulwarks if we relaxed for a moment our hold of what was next us. In addition to this, I say, there was now the deadly menace of the topgallant mast, with its weight of yards, fiercely swinging and beating right over our heads, and poised there by the slender filaments of its rigging, which might part and let the whole mass fall at any moment. We entered the deckhouse, and paused for a little while in its comparative silence and stagnation to exchange a few words. "'The water is gaining upon the ship, Mr. Tregarthen,' said Helga. "'I fear so,' I answered. "'If it should increase beyond the control of the pumps, what is to be done?' she asked. "'We are without boats.' "'What can be done?' cried I. "'We shall have to make some desperate thrust for life, "'contrive something out of the hen-coop, spare booms, whatever is to be found.' "'What chance? What chance have we in such a sea as this?' she exclaimed, "'clasping her hands and looking up at me with eyes large with emotion.' though I found nothing of fear in the shining of them or in the working of her pale face. I had no answer to make. Indeed, it put a sort of feeling into the blood like madness itself even to talk of a raft, with the sound in our ears of the sea that was raging outside. And then there is my father, she continued, helpless, unable to move. How is he to be rescued? I would lose my life to save his, but what is to be done if the scale continues? His experience should be of use to us, said I. Let us go and talk with him. She opened the door of the berth, halted, stared a minute, then turned to me with her forefinger upon her lip. I peered and found the poor man fast asleep. I believed at first that he was dead, 
So still he lay, so easy was his countenance, so white too. But after watching a moment, I spied his breast rising and falling. Helga drew close and stood viewing him. A strange and moving sight was that swinging cot, the revelation of the death-like head within, the swaying, boyish figure of the daughter gazing with eyes of love, pity, distress at the sleeping, haggard face, as it came and went. She sat down beside me. I shall lose him soon, said she. But what is killing him? He was white and poorly yesterday, but not ill as he is now. It would have been idle to attempt any sort of encouragement. The truth was as plain to her as to me. I could find nothing better to say than that the gale might cease suddenly, that a large steam frigate had passed us a little while before, that some vessel was sure to heave into sight when the weather moderated, and that, meanwhile, our efforts must be directed to keeping the vessel afloat. I could not again talk of the raft. It was enough to feel the sickening tossing of the ship under us to render the thought of that remedy for our state horrible and hopeless. The time slowly passed. It was drawing on to one o'clock. I went on deck to examine the helm and to judge of the weather, then sounded the well, but found no material increase of water. The bark, however, was rolling so furiously that it was almost impossible to get a correct cast. Before re-entering the house, I sent a look round from the shelter of the weather bulwark, to observe what materials were to be obtained for a raft should the weather suffer us to launch such a thing, and the bark foundered spite of our toil. There was a number of spare booms, securely lashed on top of the seaman's deckhouse and galley, and these, with the hencoop and hatch covers, and the little casks or scuttle-butts out of which the men drank, would provide us with what we needed. But the contemplation of death itself was not so dreadful to me as the prospect which this fancy of a raft opened. I hung, crouching under the lee of the tall bulwark, gnawing my lip as thought after thought arose in me, and digging my fingernails into the palms of my hands. The suddenness of it all, the being this time yesterday safe ashore, without the dimmest imagination of what was to come, the anguish of my poor old mother, the perishing, as I did not doubt, of my brave comrades of the lifeboat. Then, this vessel slowly taking in water, dying as it were by inches, and as doomed as though hell's curse were upon her, unless the gale should cease and help come. I could not bear it. I started to my feet with a sense of madness upon me, with a wild and dreadful desire in me to show mercy to myself by plunging and by silencing the delirious fancies of my brain in the wide sweep of seething waters that rushed from the very line of the rail of the bark as she leaned to her beam ends in the thunderous trough of that instant. It was a sort of hysteria that did not last. Yet might I have found a temptation and time in the swift passage of it to have destroyed myself, but for God's hand upon me, as I choose to believe, and to be ever thankful for. End of chapter 6